that's why I think about relational organizing a lot is in the, in the long term, there's a lot of potential to, to bridge those gaps, right? Because when people actually meet each other and know each other, suddenly it's, it's like, oh, the other side's not as bad as I made them out to be. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Josh Kravitz, who's currently a Congressional Digital Innovation Scholar at Tech Congress. He's also a Stanford graduate with degrees in computer science and a master's in statistics, who spent some time in the campaign world building applications for Democratic campaigns, like the recent Ossoff runoff campaign in Georgia. So we talked about what he saw and did on those campaigns and what he knows about the progressive tech ecosystem and groups like Digidems and Blue Bonnet Data and whether he'll go back to campaigning. So after a word from our sponsor, my interview with Josh Kravitz of Tech Congress. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Josh. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Not bad. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah. So I'm Joshua Kravitz. I recently graduated from school down in the Bay last year in March from my undergrad and master's in computer science and stats. You can say Stanford. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Graduated from Stanford uh, last March. And then ended up on a couple of political campaigns. I was a data director through the through Digidems, this really great org that places tech and digital folks onto progressive democratic campaigns. Was in Texas 22 in Houston. The candidate was Shri Kulkarni. There I was technically the data director, but did anything related to, to technology, so security, data, tech, everything in between. After that, I was lucky enough to end up on John Ossoff's runoff race down in Georgia. And there I was a deputy data director working on the relational program. So I I supported by building tools and kind of being a program manager and figuring out how data and tech could help and support the programs for both the, the volunteer relational program and the paid relational program, the community mobilizer program, which I know Zoe, who was previously on this podcast, had talked a lot about since then, I took some time off. It was a crazy couple of months and then worked on an analyst institute report analyzing that program we ran. And then now I'm a fellow through this fellowship program called Tech Congress. I'm working on the Hill and I am currently in the placement period. So do not know where I'll be working, but eventually somewhere. My mom actually was a congressional fellow as a teacher of math and got placed with a congressman many, many years ago. 
It was a pretty cool program, and I think it's a similar one where they take people with particular expertise who've done things of note and find a way for them to help members of Congress or committees. So cool that you're doing that. Yeah. I'm always interested in how how changed the world of political technology is now that someone with your credentials, computer science at Stanford and master's in stats from there would want to come into the field and would come in at, you know, a deputy type of data director for a campaign. We didn't used to in politics attract people like that. They used to go into industry, not into politics. And, you know, a lot of people still do. Just give me a little bit of your impressions about the world of politics and technology these days from someone sort of just entering it. I can speak a little bit first as to like how I got into it and then speak to my broader thoughts if they have any weight at all. <laughs> Probably not much. But originally I got into it because I did work in industry. I did a couple of internships at a couple of different companies and did tried research as well. And research stuck a little bit more with me, but the world of of industry didn't really stick with me in that despite them being very well-paid jobs and having many perks, I was really looking for, I guess the, the buzzword is like a mission-driven thing. My graduation lined up very nicely with the presidential election in 2020. I was looking for opportunities and it felt, it did feel very difficult to, to get a foot in the door. I tried talking to a lot of different people. You know, I was seeing where I could fit in, how I could help. And I don't think this is particular to, to progressive politics at all. But with as with many fields, they really looked for past campaign experience, which I didn't have because it was my first campaign. And so I ended up finding this org called DigiDems, which was really great, which kind of, at least right now, is trying to fill in that gap, which is to take tech and digital and whatever data people who maybe don't have that campaign experience, but have a lot to, to add to campaigns and put them onto those campaigns for free. So I ended up doing that. That was a great stepping stone and opportunity. How long were you kind of associated with DigiDems? I had interviewed Alicia, who founded it, on the podcast some time ago. And, you know, I'm always tracking the pathways that people take into campaigns with tech experience. But tell me more about your experience with them and, and how that worked. So I, I was a DigiDem from, I started in June and then went through election day or a little past, a couple of weeks past election day to wrap things up. The way it works or their model as of the 2020 cycle was basically you apply, they took like 80 people this past cycle and they'll talk to many different campaigns. They have a list of campaigns they're working with. They'll know what each campaign needs. Some need like a social media expert, some need graphic design, some need data. Some just want like a security director. Right. If it's a coordinated campaign, there are a lot of staff to secure, so they want help with that. Um, and so they'll kind of match people based on expertise to campaigns. And so I ended up in Texas, actually, not by choice necessarily. It was very much just the Texas campaign said they wanted a data director and DigiDems knew I did data work. And so that was my match. And so I, they basically say like, hey, you're a match to this campaign. You go work for them. And you, or you talk to them first to make sure it's a reasonable match and then you go work. That's kind of the process. Once I'm on the campaign, you're really just a full-time staffer. DigiDems is really there as a support mechanism. We had check-ins with our supervisors there, and they would 
they would help us if we were stuck on like nitty gritty things. There were technical specialists in security and data and social media who could help us out, which was really great. And there was a forum. That was actually one of the best parts, I think, of the program is we had this forum that had people from the DNC, the D-Trip, different vendors like Reach and ThruTalk, and you could literally tag them in questions and they would respond. And so you'd get very quick feedback and, and answers and information. Yeah, so that, that's a quick overview. Coming from outside where you've used a lot of tech in school and elsewhere, what was your sense of the caliber of the technology available to a congressional campaign? My sense is it varies a lot. What I experienced in Texas was, by no means was it perfect, but it was probably on the extreme end of what was available because it was a D-Trip uh, sponsored campaign. It was a red to blue campaign. So it was very heavily invested in. So many tech tools for peer-to-peer texting and volunteer management and like a lot of staff were provided to the campaign for free. That's kind of one angle. And the other extreme is like a campaign that no one is really paying attention to. They have very limited money. They're just doing everything in Google Sheets. Now, I will say, even with all of those tech tools, my first impression was like, wow, the <laughs> there are some like standout tech tools within the progressive ecosystem. And I think it's improving and people are paying attention more and more to, to design and user experience and, and things like that. But my first impression was like very much like compared to, I mean, there are many bad tools in the private sector as well, but it was just like they were often very difficult to use and very unintuitive to use from both an administrative standpoint and from a volunteer standpoint. And so that was frustrating to see. I mean, there are two approaches, right? Is one, it was very frustrating. The other is like, wow, there's lots of opportunity for for someone to come in and, and really help make a difference and make the experience better for everyone. But really, campaigns are not, even though this tends to happen and it did an off, campaigns are not the place to be building entire suites of technology, even if you can. When you are out now trying to do work in this field, what did you think of your educational background was most relevant of the things that you learned along the way in college and grad school? I generally tell people that most... Most of what I learned is honestly not that useful for what I'm doing. Probably the most useful thing I did is totally unrelated to school. I mean, it is related to school, but I was part of this org called Camp Kesem, which was a, an organization. This is kind of a detour here, but an organization slash camp for kids whose parents have cancer or passed from cancer. And that was a big part of my life for like five years in school. And for two years, I was one of the, the student leaders, one year being like helping with counselor training and hiring and the other year being one of the, the co-chairs, student directors. And so I think, honestly, the skills of just like, right, I became a more empathetic and vulnerable person, was able to talk to people and listen to them more closely. And I was able to, you know, just learn. I have a lot to learn still, but I got a lot. I made a lot of mistakes during those years, but I learned a lot about how to just like lead and how to take people's ideas and make people work together well. And so I think that the ability to synthesize different thoughts and ideas and listen to where everyone was at, I think really grounded me. And it wasn't called user research when I was doing it, but it, it kind of gives me that mindset of coming in not as this like savior, but of coming in as this person Zoe always gives me more credit than I deserve uh, for the community mobilizer program. Cause I, I always say like, Oh, I came in to like support the program and see what they were doing and see how 
what I could do could help them. I wasn't the program, you know. What kind of support was required? What did you do with data behind the scenes? Or I think she referenced visualization of the data a bit too. There were kind of two parallel tracks for the volunteer and paid programs. So I worked under Davis Leonard, who ran the volunteer program, and then Zoe Stein, who ran the paid program. And there were kind of parallel things going on in each side. And so one of these things was some version of a manager or supervisor helping the relational canvasser. And so I'm using these terms generically because the manager in the paid program would be a full-time staff member of the campaign. A manager in the volunteer program would be like a super vol who's just helping out. And then below that would be a volunteer relational canvasser, someone on the app reach we used or a community mobilizer. And so on the paid side, yeah, I built this dashboard that the intention of it was basically to say like, here is how you as a manager are doing compared to other managers based on these, whatever, 10 different metrics. Here are the people you should prioritize based on these metrics. Like if you want to see who has not been active on the app in the last few days, like you can look, look them up, you can click on them, you can see who's in their network, you can see who of their relational network has voted, who do they have IDs marked for, vote plans for. And so I think the key to all this was not that I came in on day one and said, like, this is what the dashboard should look like. Like, sure, don't get me wrong, I had ideas for what, what might be helpful for them. But a lot of it was like, let me just, you know, throw something together, throw it at you and see see how you react. Like, and then ask, like the next day, I mean, things were moving so quickly. So I'd update something and I'd get feedback in an hour. They would say like, oh, this thing was really helpful. I don't really use this that much. Great. I delete the thing that they don't use. I, I like improve, figure out why that one number was helpful to them and try to expand on that. And so it was really an iterative process. That was, I'd say, the main thing that really supported their work on a day-to-day basis anyways. My experience with building products in that iterative fashion with a small user base that is giving you feedback is it's much more fulfilling than a lot of other software development. People are grateful when you put something together that helps them. And it's nice if you do something and they like it, you hear it, you can move a lot quicker that way than something that has a long, you know, development plan and, and you're just sort of implementing something that you know where you're going. It just takes a while to build it. Do you feel like that or? Do you think there's a downside to going about it that way? Yeah, I think mostly yes. And then there is the devil's advocate perspective here. But I, I think for sure it was very, it was very fulfilling to like be able to move that. I mean, it's very tiring at the same time, uh, given this was like in the span of six weeks from, which really went from, I shouldn't say we, it was like Zoe and others went from idea conception of this program to like election day and hiring 3,000 people within the span of like five to seven weeks. But I did find it very fulfilling. And not only that, like the team was incredibly receptive to everything I was doing. And like it was clear they really, really appreciated the work I was doing and very much not only appreciated it, but wanted more and wanted to utilize it. And so we're excited about it. It wasn't like if they didn't understand something, like how a number should be used, they just like ignored it and moved on and didn't use the data. They would like actively ask and be like, I'm confused by this. And that was really great because then I'd be like, oh, this is a confusing thing. Like, let's figure out. I mean, I can help you understand what it is. And also I can make this a more friendly 
dashboard or set of visualizations for you and for all the staff. That's one side. The other perspective, I guess, is like, yeah, you do lose out on that long term road mapping work. On the flip side, I feel like we do a lot of that and maybe not enough in some ways, but I feel like what was cool about this is we really could iterate and see what kind of stuck to the wall and we didn't have to like plan 12 months out and say like, oh, we think these are the things that will stick and these are the things that won't. I feel like there were a lot of insights that came from these two months of work. Even though it was only two months, we were able to try so many different things um, in such a short time period where I feel like we, we gained a lot of knowledge moving forward, which I think was unique. One of the realities of anything developed on a campaign is typically it gets lost. The code just disappears into the ether. Are you able to use what you did going forward in any way or does anybody? That was definitely something on my mind. What was cool is a lot of the work we did in Texas. So I should note that Shree Kulkarni's campaign in Texas, especially in 2018, Shree is very passionate about relational organizing. And in 2018, he was not paid attention to by any of the national committees, by the DTRIP or anyone. It was very much just his own thing. He very much believed in this idea of relational organizing, in particular because there were many you know, South Asian communities, very tight-knit communities within his district. And so he thought that it would be a really useful tool. And they ran a really cool program, all based out of spreadsheets. They didn't use an app or anything. And one of the tools they built was this email program where every day, you know, people doing relational organizing would receive an email with their network listing information about them and whether they had voted or not during the early vote period. So we used that again in 2020. And that was actually one of the tools we ended up using on the Ossoff campaign. And we built on it and like the emails look nicer or whatever. That was a cool example of that moving forward. I think now there's a question of like, how does that become a bigger thing? Step one is open sourcing the code and the things that were required to build it. That hasn't happened for that particular tool, but another tool we did open source. But that's just step one because it can be on the internet. But like, what good does that do? Not much unless an organization takes it on to maintain and support it. So I guess my point is, is I like tried to at least like we have a demo of the, the dashboard visualizations we use. We have a demo of the, the phone bank outreach that we built. We have a demo of like the volunteer management spreadsheet that we used. We have like some of the code we wrote to, to update to like with the reach API to like update tags within the app for your network. I'm like proud that we did that because that was, I think, better than most other campaigns and organizations or like a, a step forward, but it still is like just sitting there. And it's helpful to show to others for their own inspiration, but it's still missing that like, how does it go into production? And part of that is, I think like companies take it on and build stuff on top of it. I'm personally a fan of open source, like things like Spoke, I really love. And if more projects like that could take off. I should note that Reach had a really has a really strong technical backend, like a very great API, a very understandable data schema and format. And so it was very easy to build on top of their platform. I think that's also right, like making it that even possible is another another part of the equation. So you had mentioned earlier on that you had done some work with the Analyst Institute trying to evaluate the work that you that was done at Ossoff uh, on the relational 
organizing program. Can you tell me a little bit about what you did there and with whom? Yeah, so after the election was over uh, in January, we looked at this data and there was a lot of data. What's cool about Reach, the app we used, is there's this treasure trove of data. So we have information on all of the relational canvassers, the users of the app, and we have data on all the people in the voter file, all the voters that they've added to their networks. And so we had a whole map of who was in this relational network. And with the early vote data, or sorry, with the election day and early vote data from the Georgia runoffs, we could see, we could try to estimate our impact. And in addition to that, we could also look for other interesting findings that might be relevant to future programs. So me, along with this, uh, this guy named Evan Rosenman, who is currently a postdoc at Harvard, um, he was previously a data scientist on the Biden campaign, and before that fin was finishing his PhD in stats from at Stanford. Um, we worked on this analysis, and there were, there were kind of three findings from this analysis of the data. The first was this concept of homophily, which is just a fancy way of saying the relational canvassers, the users of reach, were added to their networks, people who shared characteristics of themselves. So very concretely, like if I am a 20-year-old white male, on average, I will have more 20-year-old white males in my network. And that's on average, right? I guess more broadly, it's like I'll have younger people in my network. There were differences in how much it held, but basically across gender, race, ethnicity, geography, age, turnout score, partisanship score, et cetera. People were very much connected to the people who were like them. Um, the second thing was related to our volunteer and our paid programs, both of which were quite successful by many viewings of the numbers. Measures. Measures, that's the word I was looking for. Great, thank you. Um, <laughs> many measures. I was, there was a phrase there that I was looking for. Um, uh, but the, the paid program, because we did this targeted outreach and recruitment of relational canvassers, we were actively seeking people who were unengaged, less engaged in politics, who hadn't volunteered on campaigns before. Generally, they were black voters. Generally, they were younger voters. Um, they themselves added more of those voters to the network. The network, the relational network of voters was much more diverse in the paid program than in the volunteer program. That said, I do want to emphasize the volunteer program was really successful. It was like still over 30 to 40,000 people in the network, which is still a humongous relational network um, for a volunteer program. The third thing was our impact uh, on turnout. And so we estimated based on some fancy statistical things that the, the impact was 3.8 percentage points, which is mostly in line. I believe the Analyst Institute meta-analysis shows between like 1.5 and 2, 3.8, or 2 and 3.8, I'm making up the numbers, but 3.7, 3.8 was the upper end. And so that's, that's our estimate of the impact we had, which was super exciting. We also found that the impact was greatest on voters with low turnout scores and younger voters. It's unclear how extendable that finding is to, to future programs. Like it very much could have been a result of like, we use this app, Reach. It was very much a tech forward, uh, campaign or program. And so maybe, you know, younger people were more easily able to add many folks to their network and reach out to them using their phones. But it was an interesting finding because it kind of pushes forward the argument that like, oh, if we not only can we pay and get younger voters and low turnout score voters into our network, we can all, like, they'll also do a better job. We'll also get, you know, our impact will be greater as well. 
So that was a really cool analysis, I think. And it seems like it's gotten some traction and a variety of people have been, been using it to develop their own programs as well. Without being familiar with that, particularly, although I've heard another person mention it, how do you know that it was your program rather than sort of the overlay of multiple programs? I've heard a variety of people talk about the things that they were doing to target a similar subset of people. That's such a, a, a notably large number compared to a lot of other uh, effects, campaign effects that you see. Do you think it's possible that, that you didn't capture that going on? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, short answer is yes. Uh, yes, that is possible. Um, the longer answer is we, right, this is what we call an observational study in statistics. So we're look, we're not running, you know, Analyst Institute, so they're, they're evolving here, but they're focused very much on randomized control trials. So randomizing who is getting the treatment and who is getting the control and then estimating an effect of a program. In this case, we didn't have that. We're just looking retroactively at the data and trying to estimate an effect. And so what are we able to do with that? Like, we do have a lot of data on the voters who are in our relational network, right? The Georgia voter file has ethnicity and those are like 85% of voters self-report that data. So it's not modeled. We have, you know, where they live, we have their age, we have the districts they're in, et cetera, their voting history. So we can use that to look at comparable voters who were in the relational network versus not. And so is that perfect? No, but we're able to create, based on the data we have, two groups that look relatively similar. And so that, that was really the goal of, of what the analysis did for the impact um, work was basically saying, like, here's our relational network of 160,000 voters. Let's find people who look like those 160,000 and get a comparable control group. But there's a caveat here that like we don't have right there. We only have so much data. We don't we don't know everything about who is who is getting the treatment and who is not. And in this case, being in the network or not. And so, yeah, there is a world where like people who were contacted by other campaigns or organizations were more likely to become community mobilizers and were more likely to like reach out to other friends who were also contacted by other campaigns, whatever. I'm coming up with these chains of causality here. Uh, so I think we did a good job controlling for the data we had. And I think it was like, it was pretty rigorous in that like our estimates were, uh, I don't know what this, there's a statistical term for this, but our estimates were like good in the sense that they, uh, they were robust to the data we had, but there is always the unknown of like the, the confounding, the unknown, the unobserved variables. Um, and that's always going to be an open question. If you were going to advise someone just getting into the area of being a data director for a campaign, what would you tell them to learn to do? What makes a good data director? There's probably two components to this. I think really just being willing to be a part of the programs you're supporting. The stereotype is the data or tech person is going to be like, that's a way to get to remove yourself from organizing and from call time and all of these things. But I actually think the, the more effective data directors or people doing data work in this space actively engage with that work. Like they know what it's like to knock doors. They go to a volunteer meeting and they see what it's like to engage with volunteers. They, 
they listen in on call time. They like work with the tools that the call time, the finance staff have to work with. That's probably my number one thing is to not be afraid to jump into that. I think some people like leave organizing and go to data to try to get away from the craziness of organizing. But I think there's really, you know, you don't have to be a full-time organizer, but there's a lot of benefit to really knowing the details about what's going on on the ground. And then I think another thing is just, I think the best data directors are very good technical translators and know how to talk to and this is related, but know how to talk to like non-technical finance staff or organizers and both understand their needs and also communicate like what are the technical hiccups, what are the, the blockers, the, thing that's, the things that will make the work difficult or easy or whatever. And also moreover, being able, right, just like being able to display data in a really intuitive way and being able to understand what's confusing for, oh, what's confusing for people and what's not. Didn't you uh, do some work with Blue Bonnet? And what was that? And explain Blue Bonnet a bit. I did interview some of their principals back some time ago also. Cool. Yeah, I totally forgot to mention them, actually. So Blue Bonnet is an org that there's a lot of these organizations that take data tech people and throw them into these other spaces. Um, and so this is another one of them. It's like DigiDems in that they're taking tech and data people and putting them onto campaigns. But kind of with two differences. One is that it's on a volunteer capacity, not a full-time paid role capacity. Um, and then two, they're focused more on down-ballot races. So they're on like school board races and more local races, some congressional races. And I think now they're starting to work with nonprofit organizations. So like progressive nonprofits and or PACs. Um, and so I was doing data work on the Texas Railroad Commissioner's race. At that point in time, I knew nothing about campaigns. Um, and it was it was an interesting experience. The, the Railroad Commissioner is an interesting race because this commission has a lot of jurisdiction over the like, regulation of gas and oil. Despite being called railroad, they're, they're very much focused on like fracking and gas and oil and that kind of work. And so this was like a progressive candidate running in the primary. She had lost... It was a great experience, and I met a, it built up a network within the progressive political space, which was great. Um, it was a, a tough race because the I think there wasn't a lot of money for this campaign, and so I feel like our, our Blue Bonnet team was very much being asked like strategic questions when none of us had been on campaigns before. We could take our best guess, but like we, we really didn't know. Um, there wasn't really a campaign manager or anything like that. That said, I think there are a lot of races that Blue Bonnet teams are on that do have like full-fledged teams. An example, on Texas 22, I worked with the Blue Bonnet team as well as the data director. So there's it's a wide, wide-varying experiences there. Why did you apply for this Congressional Digital Innovation Scholarship? What was your plan there? Where are you trying to take yourself? <laughs> Age-old question. I've always had an interest in policy, just broadly. My statistics background, who knows, this is already a nerdy way of talking about it, but who knows which, which direction the causality ran. But my mind is very much like you do A and how, to, well, how does it affect B and things like that. And who knows, you know, like I think I had that mindset going into my statistics master's. I think that reinforced it doing that, that degree. I've always wanted to do something impactful and kind of use that frame of mind and frame of thinking and apply it to, to kind of real world scenarios. 
I enjoyed the components of research that were very applied for like real world interesting problems. Policy is interesting in that it, when it comes down to it, it's like, how do you change incentives to like change outcomes is how I think about it. And so that was just a very interesting question to me. My dad has, is a doctor, both my parents are doctors, but my dad does public health policy or health policy more generally. So I've definitely been exposed to that. I've had my own medical stuff that has exposed me to the healthcare system. So I've also had a particular interest in health policy. And so this is all to say, I've been thinking for a while about how to get involved in the policy space. I had looked at things like think tanks and whatever, civil society organizations and things like that. Tech Congress just seemed like a very unique opportunity. So I'd applied, truly not expecting to get it because it's a ridiculous process. <laughs> um, so I was like, oh, I'll just throw my head in the ring and then ended up getting an offer back in May. So now now I'm doing that. And that's it's very exciting. So they're having me focus on modernization work. I won't get into the details because it's unclear exactly what I'll be doing, but something related to congressional modernization or government IT modernization initiatives. Has it left you thinking that this, that the way this scholarship and this organization is thoughtful and, you know, are they getting good people? Are they placing them well? What's your opinion from what you can tell of the, the process and the result of pulling these people together into the scholarship? They've done a really great job talking to or getting great people for the fellowship. There were a, couple, a few hundred people that applied and they took like 10. And there's like some incredible backgrounds. And so I think that they've done a really great job there. They've, In terms of placement, it's very much on the individual to look for places that they want to want to work. So based on their, their interests. Their end goal really is, from my understanding, and I, I should emphasize I'm speaking as an individual, not a representative of, of Tech Congress, but their end goal is really for them not to exist, is my understanding, right? They want congressional staff and congressional committees to to actively want to hire tech individuals or individuals with tech backgrounds on their own with their own money. Does that mean your salary will come through Tech Congress and you'll be free to the congressman? Or- That's right. Yeah, yeah. So the stat, the committee or, or office I work for, I'm I am free labor for too. Um, so that the fellowship pays pays for me. Do you have a hankering to go back to the campaign side at all? What do you think you'll do as things heat up and this innovation fellowship expires? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for the right opportunity, I could see myself doing something in 2022 or 2024. My future thinking self is very much very much thinks about, you know, or things like three months from now. So thinking about what I'll be doing nine months from now is a, a big question mark. This is, it's very similar to the, the Hill, but campaigns are, they're very varied. That's a, yeah, they're very varied in the sense that like how they're run and who runs them and what kind of programs they run um, is very different across campaigns. So I think if for the right opportunity, like doing a, another relational program and being able to do some cool new stuff, it's a very tiring lifestyle <laughs> i found um like we need never needs to change to if we want to retain more tech talent but also just more people more generally what level of interest do you have in sort of data visualization as a a way of communicating data and programs and processes 
for all of these things, like data visualization or building tools, programming, whatever. I think for me, they're very much tools in my my toolkit or tool set. But uh, if the the problem I'm facing or the question I'm facing requires, you know, requires a technical solution, like great. But if it doesn't, that's also totally fine. And so I think like I'm not someone who aspires to be a data visualization journalist or something like that. Um, I think I really admire that work. And there are times when I get very much into data visualization and really like to work on those skills, but it's not, it's not something that I aspire to be doing on a day-to-day basis. I think it can just be a very effective way for communicating more clearly large amounts of data, which is what more and more we're getting a lot of that within the campaign space. And it's very uninterpretable or undigestible. For some reason, people who do the tech side of campaigns don't get asked much about politics. What have you thought about the battle between Republicans and Democrats in this time? And why are you on the side that you're on? A deep question. Whoever is listening, take anything I say with a grain of salt, because I'm just uh, rambling here. And But I'll start with the second question, why I'm on the side. I mean, the like simple, like bad answer is like, oh, I grew up, you know, my parents were Democrats. I grew up that way. And that's just what I was exposed to. I think the the deeper answer, as I've thought about this stuff more, is I very much want, like, think everyone deserves some form of humanity. Like everyone within the world, I think, should be able to live a decent life, whether that means, you know, in our society, in different societies, that can mean different things. But in our society, that means being able to, like, you know, have a roof over your head and be able to have food and water and be able to take care of yourself, go to the doctor when you need it. And so I think the the democratic side very much supports those visions. I don't label myself as a moderate, but some people might say I am because I consider myself like a, a realist in some sense. If I don't know the details of what's happening on the ground day to day for a specific policy issue or something, then to me, it's like, it's a high level arbitrary discussion. And so I I have these progressive visions, but I very much am grounded in like the fact that there's nuance to all of these discussions. It's not so black and white for basically any issue. Now there are extreme positions that I'll disagree with on both sides, but for the most part, there's just like a lot of nuance to figure out. I think what's interesting about this time is there's this like media partisanship and it's us versus them, Republicans and Democrats. This is kind of a classic psychosocial thing, but when you really meet someone in person, I mean, for this this fellowship I'm in during this placement period, I've met people on both sides of the aisle and many of them are very like nice, reasonable people. I mean, it's easy to like cast the Republicans as like these evil people who cause X, Y, Z issues, but many of them, they believe more in a restrained government, uh, like smaller government. And they have, they have certain ideals and, and thoughts and maybe I disagree with them. Maybe I agree with them, but they're, they are reasonable like people that I can talk to. That's why I think about relational organizing a lot is in the, in the long term, there's a lot of potential to, to bridge those gaps, right? Because when people actually meet each other and know each other, suddenly it's, it's like, oh, the other side's not as bad as I made them out to be. Have you ever thought about being more of an entrepreneur in the space? I mean, people coming out of campaigns have built things like reach that you used or other tools. Is that something that has appealed to you? Start your own or join a, a small 
political tech organization? That was certainly something I had looked at after the campaign life. I think because I had an interest in policy and kind of seeing the, the world of DC, I went this route. But longer term, I could definitely see that as a route. I think I, I'm a little, maybe troubled is too strong of a word, but there's a lot of turnover and fragmentation within the political tech space. And like my sense is the tools change every cycle and there's no kind of consistency. Often I had mentioned earlier, the tools are not built in a super intuitive way with, with some exceptions. I guess in some ways it's like, oh, I have these ideas, but I also don't necessarily believe, but I don't necessarily believe that starting a new company is the way to change it. Like sometimes I, I go back and forth, but sometimes, right? Like the, the tools built by the DNC are incredible tools and there's a lot of support around them and they're free. So for the most part. And so sometimes I wonder, should things be more centralized? And, but yeah, it's a, it's an open question. That was a rambling answer. Yes, no, and maybe is my final answer. When you talked about the two parties, you talked very generally, how does Trump play into that for you? Trump is uh, crazy, I guess. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when I'm talking about this partisan warfare, I think I think a lot about Trump. Like, who knows if I would have gotten involved in campaigns if Trump were not an item on the Republican side. Um, like, truly, I did not pay attention to politics much until the presidential primaries um, for the 2020 election. So was that a galvanizer? Potentially, and probably. Um, and did that make me feel like you know, it's like even if I disagree with some things or don't fully agree with everything that a candidate on the Democratic side stands for, I so vehemently disagree with <laughs> many times with what is being said on the other side that it, it feels like a fight worth fighting for. And I think since getting into the space, I've developed, developed my own views about where I want to be and what I want to, what I would want to push forward if I were to go back into the space. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that you'd like to be asked? Interesting. Give me 10 seconds to think about that. I don't think so. I think I would just reemphasize something I had mentioned earlier, which is I don't think Silicon Valley has all the answers and there's a reason I left that space. But what some of the better companies do, I think it's worth looking at and thinking about and bringing over to us, which is thinking about, right, the, the jargon doesn't really matter, but thinking about like doing more user research-based work, thinking about not only like how do we make this functional by election day, but how do we make this tool like a pleasure to use, right? Like the, the phone bank, which Zoe had talked about called Outreach that we built. We like read about Candy Crush and thought about how to make, make it addictive and how to make it really fun to use. And we didn't do implement everything we wanted to, but it was it was something that was really exciting. And I think like, even though it sounds silly, generally had an impact when like confetti flew across the screen for someone calling their friends, they got very excited. And so I think just thinking about how do we present data and how do we present our tools to volunteers and staffers in a way that makes their lives easy and makes their work um, approachable and flexible, I think that that will pay hugely in the future. Well, it's good to talk to you, Josh. Thanks for taking the time. Anything else you want to say? No, I don't think so. Thanks so much for having me. That was Josh Kravitz. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.